Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcasts. I'm Steve Clark, and I'm delighted to be joined by the motorsport writer, broadcaster, and editorial consultant, Morris Hamilton. Hello, Steve. Lovely to see you. Morris, it's great to have you with us today. Now, we're here to chat about your latest book, Biography of Nicky Lauda, which I have to say I found fascinating. Thank you. Good. Um, but before we start, I have to ask, yesterday's first Grand Prix of 2020, um, I put the T-shirt on, what a result for McLaren. Do you Fact. think they found something or is it just the flourishing partnership with Renault? Um, not, well, it's a combination of lots of things because you're looking at that race, any number of things could have happened. Uh, you know, Lewis Hamilton might have won it, Max Verstappen might have won it, um, you're almost saying that, uh, um, I mean, the McLaren story, he was there. I mean, the, the, I think what we can't deny, regardless of circumstances, is that the McLaren partnership uh, with Renault at the moment, the way that car is working uh, with Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz is good. I mean, they're, they're, they're up there and they, well, they were expecting Racing Point to be ahead of them. But in fact, I think yeah. they've come out yeah. of it ahead of Racing Point. And I seem to recall they got um, Lando got fastest lap of the race, didn't he? That's phenomenal because, yeah. uh, you know, it's the end of the race, 71 laps. Yeah. The tires cannot have been at their best. Um, and uh, he really knew he had to do it and he went for it and he didn't make any mistakes. Mm. That, I think, you know, he, it's, it may sound a bit rude to say this, but he kind of almost grew up over the yeah, weekend. Yeah, could be. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this will be the making of him, I'm sure. Yeah. And to pull McLaren out of the doldrums that they've been in for so long. So... It could be a good shortened season. We don't know. No, well, the signs are brilliant. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, Mercedes. Okay, so Valtteri Bottas leads from start to finish. It's like, oh, here we go again. But it wasn't like that at all. And I mean, no. they've got they've got reliability problems, which of course is with the greatest respect to them. I'm sorry to say this, but it's what we need. Yeah, and we do. We do absolutely. Bring it Something on. a little bit different in the mix. Yeah. So, Maurice, the book. Um, first of all, what prompted you to write it? And it had been a long time planning thing, or was it something that you just hadn't expected to do? I think it's the latter, Steve, actually, to be honest with you. Um, I had no thought about doing a book on Nicky Lauda. It hadn't entered my head until uh, when the week when he passed away in May 2019. Um, like everybody else, I read the... the uh, obituaries and mm. um, all the thoughts about him. And what really struck me was that apart from finding them in the motorsport press where you would expect them, uh, there were tributes to him from all around the world in all sorts of publications. And it, it struck me that um, he was obviously well known to us in inside motorsport. And you would expect, yeah, okay, he is probably well known outside the sport because he ran an airline. And people would, might remember 1976 and the big accident, which he recovered mm. from a long time ago. But what really became clear was that he was actually quite a sporting icon, not just within motorsport. And there was a lot to his story. And I hadn't really thought about it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I've, I'm very, very fortunate in that I have um, a very good literary agent, David Luxon. I've been with him 15 odd years. And I was mulling this over. And David came on the phone to me the same day. It was literally on the couple of days after he passed away, asking me the same question. Do you think there's a book in this? And I suddenly thought, um, do you know what? I think there might be. 
well, uh, yeah. That's what led to it. So it really wasn't, it wasn't something I'd been planning, but something when I thought about it, yeah, hey, come on. Yeah, I, I guess it was a bit of a shock to a lot of people, the global status that he'd actually had grown around him over the years, because he wasn't that big in Formula One for quite a while, was he? No, I mean, uh, you know, his his start was um, what you might call shaky, yeah. um, because uh, he was a guy, he, when he first appeared, he, he seemed like a, a rich kid with more money than sense. Uh, as, as is sometimes the case, because when he arrived in 71, uh, driving a Formula 2 car, um, he'd backing from a bank, bank loan, he'd, money he'd borrowed from a bank, and he didn't really do a huge amount. He bought a march and thought, okay, so what? And he didn't really set the tracks on a light, a light in 71. And then in 72, when he got the Formula 1 driver, or he paid for the, 70, the 72 Formula 1 driver in March, because, of course, Lauda being Lauda, he was very shrewd in that he realized that March would take you on board if you had the money. They were getting pretty... Thank you. Mm. They, they, were, they were broke at the time and uh, after the first year. So he got on board with them. And even in that year, 72, of course, it was a dog of a car. The 721X uh, was an awful car. Cool. And it didn't do anything for him. So uh, there we were, uh, two years into his international racing career, if you like. And he hadn't done anything. Yeah. And what, why would you want to pay much attention to him? Yeah. The, only, the only kind of clues you got were there was used to be um, a British Formula 2 championship. Uh, it was a small thing. It was about five races. And one of them was at Alton Park on the wet, and he won it. Yeah. And he looked fantastic. I mean, really, really good. And anybody in the wet, you think, hello. And Something different. Yeah, and that was the start of it. Just winding the clock back um, slightly, Morris. Um, when did you get the first? When did you get to meet him for the first time? And I have to say, was it a challenge? Was he a challenge to interview? <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> this is the answer. Um, but I had been warned. So the yeah. first formal interview I did with him was in 1982 at the Detroit Grand Prix. Um, I he so this was he was making his comeback. So he'd retired at the end of '79, and he was making his comeback with McLaren. And, and uh, he he'd already won the Long Beach Grand Prix, which is his third race of his comeback with McLaren, which is quite quite something. You know, a guy comes back and he wins a Grand Prix, and he wins it on merit, by the way, as well. Yeah. So anyway, I thought I really need to do a, a feature on this. And um, my good friend, the late Alan Henry, was a, was a good close friend of Nicky because Alan and Nicky had sort of grown up together through Formula 2. Alan was reporting on Formula 2 for Motoring News and they got to know each other really well and they had a similar sense of humour. And I said to Alan, would you introduce me please to, to Nicky because I want to ask, can I come and see him later in the weekend? And Alan said, yeah, sure. Uh, I said, but one word of warning. <laughs> they spring it on you. He may say to you, do it now. Okay, and I yeah. said, well, okay. And this was in between free practice sessions on the Friday in Detroit, right? So he got out of his car, he talked to his engineer, and the, 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 the pit lane in Detroit was open. It was open air. There was no garages. There, there were cars were garaged a long way away in Cobo Hall. So there's all this chaos and mayhem, and Alan takes me up to him and introduces me to him. And uh, he looks at me and he said, okay, start, do it now. And luckily, I had the tape recorder in my hand, because I, just in case he said that the question's in my head. And what he's doing is, and other journalists told me the same thing when I was doing the book, that he does, he does that to you to see if you're any good, puts you on your metal. Yeah, yeah. If you are good, then you get all the answers you want. If you're not, you get dismissed you're out. pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. So the first interview was, was interesting, let's say, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I first watched uh, Louder at the 1973 Race of Champions at Brands Hatch. Oh, yeah. And as you well know, he was driving the BRM P160. Um, and in common with most BRM races at that time, expired on lap 29, having qualified a very credible second on the grid. Um, but there was something about him, about him then, Morris. You'd obviously followed him a lot long before then. I'd, I'd actually been at um, Mallory Park in, in March 1971 when he um, made his Formula, One, his Formula 2 debut, his international debut. And um, as I said, I was intrigued by this, this kid who, who appeared to have money but not a lot of talent, but yet why was he there? And there was just some sort of aura about him. And I, um, I had visions of, I was trying to get into motorsport at the time. I wasn't actually a journalist at the time. I was trying to get in, I was a, I was a fan. And I'd thought that maybe I'd be a photographer rather than a, a journalist. And I, was, sure. I had the camera and all the lens and all the trick bits. And I was going through the paddock at Mallory Park and, um, and I saw this Nicky Lauder chap settling into the cockpit of his car. There was nobody else around him apart from Mark Pennick because the whole of the March personnel were over there around Ronnie Peterson, as you would. Of course. So and close and took this picture, which really worked out. Uh, it, was, it turned out really nice. In fact, it was, um, we used it in the book. It's in and, the book, yeah. And, and, I, and I, um, I used that then as an introduction to do a long interview with him much, much later. You're talking about the first interview in Detroit. Well, much, much, this, this is the picture I took. And um, I showed that to him uh, 40 odd years later. So, but my, yes, my introduction, I had been following him. And interesting, you mentioned 73, Steve, because uh, the British Grand Prix also, he had a stonking race there until, the, again, the BRM broke. Um, they, they'd had the first lap crash, if you remember, and that knocked a few people out. But he was really on it in that race until the yeah. car expired. And then in 73, also in the wet Canadian Grand Prix, again, it was wet. And he, I think, was leading, actually, for mm -hmm. a period, or, or right up there. So, yeah, with the BRM, it wasn't the best car, as you know. But, boy, did he make good use of it. And then with Monaco, yeah, he, did. he did it. put it on his door handles at Monaco and led he the two Ferraris. And of course, it was the uh, V12 engine that powered it at that time as well. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, which um, he always said was a little bit down in horsepower. Um, yeah. Stanley, the owner of Louis Stanley, would, would assure him that they would have more horsepower for the next race. Which he said, <laughs> when they never did. No. <laughs> um, Morris, did you feel you had enough background to write this book? Yeah, that's interesting, Steve, because when David, my agent, said to me, could you think you could write the book? I had I'd already been thinking along those lines uh, and I'd been looking things up and I was thinking about the interviews I had, which I had quite a few going right back, as I said, to 1982. But I have um, I've got an A to Z filing system. Um, and this is the days before we had computers and before um, you know, we've got the, all the resources we've got now before we had uh, Google and so on. Sure. Well, you had to keep uh, cuttings. So, and I had an A to Z uh, system. And I, I went and I hadn't, I hadn't looked at it for years because why should you? You know, you, you just go online and you've got everything you need. And I thought, I must go and try and find. So I went to that. Not only did I have a file, but instead of just under L, you go through the L and there's all the drivers whose names began with L, there was one for louder. And it was thick with stuff that I had completely forgotten I had. 
cuttings from motoring news from the from the 70s uh cuttings from interviews with him after his accident in 77 from the daily express and things like that and i found i had a wealth of background stuff that i had completely forgotten about and wonderful quotes in it that i thought well i can really use this so that that also um reassured me and, and gave me the confidence to to tackle the book yeah yeah one one thing i have to admit morris that i'd not thought of, since you've been saying there's this wealth of information um that went into the popular press that wouldn't normally have found its way in there i know this is a bit of a difficult one but if he'd not had that horrific accident do you think he would have been so well known uh probably not um uh he would have certainly had a certain notoriety because of the ongoing championship fight with james hunt yeah. which was gaining a lot of headlines and i mean it was a great story prior to the accident it was a great story because if you remember there were nip and tuck and then yeah. james wins the british grand prix and ferrari protests and james gets thrown out and um and all the rest of it and as but i think the truth of the matter is if nicky hadn't had the accident he would have won that championship yeah, I'm sure, without a doubt. So um, he would have been just another Ferrari driver wins the championship. Our our boy James gets hard done by blah blah, and um, no, I think that's that's fair comment because the the story a of the accident, which is a horrendous accident, yeah, and then the comeback. I mean, in 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 sport, never mind motorsport, just in sport. You know, we talk about. Um, Tiger Woods comeback in golf last year, which was pretty impressive. Mm. But a lot has come back as sporting comeback. That fight back as after the uh, two months after the accident of the Nurburgring is quite incredible. What yeah. he did to yeah. get back in that car and finish fourth at Monza. You know yeah. the pressure of getting back in the car, getting back in a Ferrari, doing it at Monza of all places. Huge <laughs> pressure to yeah. do all that and then to take the fight to continue the fight with james right up to the last race in fuji yeah now that really caught the public's imagination and i i think you're probably right steve um without that it probably wouldn't have been the same uh, i mean when you look at that uh, japanese grand prix the guy had some balls to say i'm only doing a couple of laps and i'm out um you know despite what mr ferrari was going to say and I recall the mechanic saying, should we say that there was a problem with the engine and Lauda said, no, I've just had enough. Um, and that to me showed the metal of the man. It did. I mean, that, that was probably the second bravest thing he did after making the comeback a couple yeah. of months before at Monza to, to do that for all the reasons you've said, Steve, because when you're driving for Ferrari, I mean, Ferrari, we have to accept is, is, the next best thing motorsports got to a national team yeah the whole of italy feels they own ferrari and um, when you're driving for ferrari you it's not so much the driver they care about they care about the team mm. and so he was out he had the pressure of winning for ferrari winning for for the whole of italy uh, and they knew they would have been watching they knew the expectation was high and then of course in the background is the specter of old man ferrari who you have to answer to if you if you don't do it so he had all that going on, but yet he knew, I suppose, what we have to say, Steve, is that, that his values about life, and particularly his life, were totally changed by what happened to him, the near-death experience at the Nürburgring, would make you think differently about how you run your life. And to him, 
the risk was too high. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to say it. And you're absolutely right. Uh, it was Daniel Odetto who said to him, shall we say it's electrics in the rain, you know? And he said, no, no, just say I stop. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid to say it. Because, but that is the, a, the mark of the man, not just the courage to do that, but also this ability just to say it exactly, exactly as how you feel. Yeah. Told it exactly as it is. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Morris, remind me, there have been other books written about Louder before, have there not? Uh, yes, there have, um, Steve, but that's actually a good point because um, in this process of um, discussing do we do a book or do we not on him, that question came up and um, I thought about it and the, the one book that, the last book that he did in English was To Helen Back, which was in 1987 and uh, it was a brilliant book. I mean, I remember being absolutely wrapped when it came out, loving it because I hadn't read a book that was so expressive or so frank and honest as this. And it was, it was an absolutely brilliant book. But two things. One was he'd done a lot in his life since 1987. Uh, he'd started the airline and he'd, there'd been the air crash, which he'd had to investigate and take on Boeing. He'd then come back into motorsport in the management roles and with Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton and all of that. Uh, so there was that story to tell. But also um, when I went back and started to read through to Helen back, I suddenly realized, and I hadn't noticed it at the time, and I don't suppose anybody would, but when that book was published in 87, uh, it was done in German, first of all, and it was transla translated by somebody who didn't know much about motorsport, didn't know the ladder, but probably did a technically correct translation, perfect translation. Cool. But in the process, they lost the voice of Nicky Lauda, okay? Mm -hmm. so you had this very correct English, which wasn't him. No. Not the way he spoke. It was quite direct, boom, boom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Lost. yeah. And I knew that the interviews I had and other stuff I would get would be as he said it. It wouldn't be polished into yeah. good English. In including the language. Yeah, including the language, correct, yeah. <laughs> the salty language, Steve, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, Morris, the acknowledgements you list in the book are virtually a who's who of Formula One. Um, and I have to say, one of the major things that came out of the, of the book for me was the sheer number of people that you've included in the book. Phenomenal number. I, I, I surprised myself, if I'm honest. Uh, I just made a list. Sort of who's, who, who, how many people did he know that I really need to talk to? And your hope is when you, when you draw up this list, which is a heck of a list, is that you might get half of them. And if you get half of them, that's good. But yeah, what yeah. really hit me um, in a nice way was that when I approached people, they couldn't wait to help. Mm. They, wanted, they wanted to help. And um, I'd be doing things such as, for example, uh, I was at Monza, so last year and in the process of gathering as many interviews as I could and uh, I wanted to see Jean Alesi and uh, I'd arranged to have breakfast with him in the Ferrari motorhome on one of the mornings and uh, we're sitting there and the, the, the media and all, all sorts of people are, are all around and I'm um, talking to Jean who was fantastic really really fantastic as he always is and uh, I finished that I looked around and I saw Mark Surer sitting at another table having his breakfast and I said, sorry, Mike, excuse me. I was just been talking. And he said, yeah, I heard. I said, could I talk to you? Yeah, good. Uh, I've got a story. Bang, bang. Mm. And there was a French cameraman, uh, Jean-Michel Tito, sitting. Uh, yeah. Boom, boom. 
and everybody had a lighter story and the more i asked the more i find yeah and the more they wanted to tell you i guess yeah and it just it just gave it the flow because that's what i wanted to do what i wanted to do more than anything else was to have this book tell you what this guy nicky lighter was like what was he like you know a lot of people knew what he'd done obviously but they didn't really know because he was quite he wasn't um he wasn't a guy who showed his emotions much he yeah. wasn't a guy who talked a lot didn't like to talk a lot about himself so i wanted to tell the story about who he was and i, I hope i've achieved that mm. well he certainly had from my point of view uh, just on that subject um the louder family did you have to get their approval to go forward with it um i i didn't have to steve but i thought i should yeah. Uh, uh, I thought I, it would be really nice if I could do that. It would make me feel better. Um, and uh, the problem here was that I, I'd never met either of the two boys, uh, Lucas or Matthias. But I got, uh, Lucas is the, the elder of the two, and I got his email thanks to um, Bradley Lord at Mercedes. Um, and I just simply emailed him and said, uh, introduce myself. Uh, said what I wanted to do, said what I had, uh, more or less what we just discussed actually. This is this is how it's come about. Yeah. Um, this is what I like to do. I like to talk to people. I like to tell the story of your father. And I sent some of the pictures of me interviewing him in 82 to show that I wasn't just, you know, I, I, I'd been around the block a few times with him. Sure. Um, and I crossed my fingers. I said, can mm -hmm. I do the book? With, would, would you mind if I did this? Cross my fingers. The next day, the phone rang. I picked it up and I nearly dropped the phone because it sounded like it was Nicky himself. <laughs> Hello, Morris. Okay, Lucas Lada here. Yes, okay, yeah, good. We got your email. Yes, go, do. Thank you. Goodbye. Fine. I thought, great. You're I'm, off. Yeah. I'm off. And that is nice to know, yeah. but it's also very good when you go to, for example, Toto Wolf, who was very, very close to the Lada family. And uh, I went to Toto and said uh, what I was doing. And I said, first of all, can I say, I've got the approval of the family. He said, fine, I'm happy to help. Because yeah. up until that point, they don't want to say too much in case they cause offence. But if you say you've got the approval, it opens a lot of doors and it, and it helps greatly. So effectively, you've opened the gate for their approval. So um, yeah. a big step forward. Morris, looking at his um, Formula One career, um, you're obviously around and following. I think he raced in 100 and... 70 something Grand Prix. How many of those do you think you actually saw in person? Uh, probably about three quarters, I'd say. Um, I missed the 70s. I would, I would go to the early 70s ones as a fan. You know, I'd do Zandvoort and Zolder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And at the weekend, weekend off work and brush across. Um, so I really started to go to quite a few in 76. And from then on, uh, every one. So I didn't miss any. So the early ones I missed, but other than that, no, I, I, I saw them all. Yeah. Mm. Just looking at the film Rush, um, what did you think of the portrayal of, uh, of Louder in Rush? I, I thought Daniel Brühl did an absolutely wonderful job. In fact, it was so good that his portrayal of Nicky before the accident in the, in the 70s that we just referred to, there were times when I watched that and I thought, have they used old yeah. video here? Because that just like him. He had all the mannerisms. The it, you're right. For me, Morris, it was the mannerisms and the way he moved and 
it, it well you did right you had to take a second look yeah and i saw and daniel Brill was one of the ones i had to talk to i felt i really should get the hold of him and that took a while to have these these film stars are hard you've got to go through an agent and i had to jump through lots of different hoops to explain what i was going to do and why and all the rest of it and anyway uh, i eventually got him on the phone and we talked for the course of an hour and he was wonderful um, and he explained the, the whole thing about how he had to go through it and how nervous he was about um, doing Nicky Lauder. Very nervous because he, because he knew who he was. He knew he was a, a very important person. And also there's this, because Daniel Brühl is German, Nicky Lauder is Austrian. Austrian yeah. there's, there's a certain frisson between the two nations. And he knew that it wouldn't go down very well in Austria that he, a German, was playing their hero. So he had to overcome all of that, which he did. Um, but he studied him at close, at close quarters. And in fact, he um, not only just watched old video, but he went out to see him in Ibiza. And in fact, he told the story about, um, he, he felt I had to go and talk to him before I started to play this role. So he very nervously um, said, uh, he got a message to Nicky that he would like to come and see him. At six o'clock in the morning, his phone rang. And he, and he could see it was a phone call, it was from Austria, and he knew it would be Nicky yeah. calling at that hour. And he told him to come to Vienna and he said, only bring a small bag because if I don't like you, you're going home. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, luckily I had to buy some more clothes because he stayed for three days. Yeah. Well, he certainly made a fantastic job. Um, Morris, um, Lauda very rarely gets rated when you discuss uh, the greatest driver of all time. He just doesn't figure in that. Why do you think that is? You're right. He doesn't. Uh, you know, if you're talking about the Senna's, the Schumacher's yeah. uh, of this world, he, he doesn't get a, a mention. We're talking at the highest level now, aren't we? Of course. I, I think, Steve, it's because he was very unobtrusive yeah. in his style of driving. Uh, he was the sort of guy that you wouldn't notice, you know, because he was all using the head and minimum of effort just to get the job done to look after the tires and the car. Very clean in the way he drove. To the point where, you know, I'm going back to the days when before we had computerized timing, which which is now de rigueur everywhere. But at the time, you would be watching out from the track with a stopwatch, and uh, you'd watch them all go by, and Senna come by or whoever would come by, up wheel up in the air doing it, and you'd expect to see a fast time. You see the list of times, and you go en lado, third or second, and you think, where did that come from? How did yeah. what, what did, he, did anybody see that? How did he do that? And that was just him. So, and he would win races the same way. He would win races almost by stealth. You know, he suddenly, he was seventh, then he was fifth, and you're busy watching the front, and then you say, oh, well, oh, he's fourth. And then he was third, he'd be looking after everything, and boom, he'd be there and do the job. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. It just wasn't spectacular, but to win three championships, you've got to be good. Yeah, yeah. Correct, correct. Do you, do you think the influence he had with that in mind um, within the Mercedes team, and especially Lewis, rubbed off onto uh, his success? Uh, yes, I do. I, I, I th the, the point about Lado is that uh, if you talk to like people like Gerhard Berger, John Lacey, and so on, that uh, used to race with him, uh, and or when even when even he was running Ferrari, he was sort of managing managing them. Yeah, um, was the respect that they had for him that they they felt like i've just described you know you don't win three championships um 
because you're, you're no good. And it was the way he did it and the way he went about his business, the integrity that he had. I mean, he rarely got into any nasty incidents. In fact, I can't think of any where he was doing something questionable behind the wheel. So I think they would all, Gerhard said, uh, when I was talking to him about him, he said, you know, in the early days, I didn't really think, oh, Lada, yeah, okay, he's another driver. And he said, it was only when afterwards I sat down after he'd retired and I sat down to think about what he'd done and think about how he'd done it. And I thought, do you know what? This guy's something special. And then he said, I really got to know him privately. And I really began to appreciate just the makeup of this man and why he was so special and his, his, his ability to think things through and to see things in a very, very clear light uh, was, uh, was unique because I don't know many people could do that. So he said that was a huge help that Berger said to me personally and probably to everybody else. And so to Lewis, yeah, I'm sure Lewis learned a thing or two from him, just, you know, maybe even subconsciously. Yeah, he, just the presence of him being there. Yeah, correct. On a personal note, Morris, how many books have you written? And uh, I know this is a tough one. How does this one rate? <laughs> cool. Um, uh, well, it's over 30 books. Uh, yeah, well. Uh, the first one was in 1986. Yeah. Um, they, they all mean something, Steve, because part of you comes out, you know, it's like somebody said, you, 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 you cut a vein and you sit at the keyboard and it sort of, it comes out. So part of you is in each book. Um, so then saying that, I think any, any personal feeling that you've got is going to count for a lot. Um, I, it's certainly well right up there. The ones that I've really felt passionate about doing and really wanted to do, the Ken Tyrrell book meant a heck of a lot to me because he was like a sort of surrogate father, a father figure to me when I was starting off and, and Tyrrell was down the road from where I was working. So yeah. um, I got to know him really well and it was a pleasure because when he was alive, Ken wouldn't have anybody do a book. No, well, I don't want to do a book. But as soon as he passed, I went to his family and got the approval and did the book because I really wanted to tell him. Mm. And it's the same with this. I think um, once I put my mind to it, I thought, God, this is a great story. This is something I really, really want to do and to tell. Uh, I did books with Jordan, Fly on the Wall books, um, two years, two seasons with them, which were great fun. Thoroughly enjoyed doing those. Hadn't been done before. Working with Damon Hill, a couple of books working with him. What yeah. a pleasure to work with him. So, Yes, it's, I, would, oh, I would just go as far as Steve was saying, it's right up there amongst the ones I really feel a lot for, yeah. Excellent. So what's next in the pipeline then, if you can say? Um, well, there's a, there's a book coming out shortly, actually, which I did last winter. Uh, it's on, it's to celebrate, it should have been launched uh, this week, actually, at the British Grand Prix or whenever that was supposed to be. Yeah. Um, 70 years of Formula One. And it's just a, a potted history. It's a history. It's, it's just a history book with, which the, the Formula One, the company, wanted right. done. And I, and I put that together as a sort of thing for them. Um, so that's coming out shortly. But it's, 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 it's um, a factual, yeah, it's, not, it's, 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 a, it's a nice book. It's a nice book, but wouldn't have the same sort of feeling as that. I have something else on the go, which is a very early stage. I'm afraid I can't tell you about it. No, no, I understand. As soon as I can, uh, I, uh, if it comes off, um, it'll be something we'll be we'll, we'll want to talk about for sure. But I'd say it's early stages yet. Perfect, Morris. As ever, it's been a joy to talk to you today. I wish you continued success with the book, and hopefully, you'll be back at Brooklands with us before too long. Thanks I for your time. Will.
I sincerely hope so, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. <laughs>